And welcome to Hilansweiden, Highlands World. My name is Thomas Hilan Eriksson, and I'm a social anthropologist at the University of Oslo, and I'm producing this podcast in order to basically talk about anything that I'm interested in. Mainly, this podcast is in Norwegian, but we do have a few entries in English. And today, as you will have noticed already, we are going to speak English. And uh, the uh, background for this podcast is the fact that in a couple of weeks' time, as I speak, towards the end of October, there is a conference in Oslo called Why the World Needs Anthropologists, which is organized by the Applied Anthropology Network of the European Association of Social Anthropologists, EASA. This is an annual conference which takes place in different cities, different European cities every year, and this year it's in Oslo. And the topic of the conference, which is very much about outreach and about the role of anthropology in, in broader society and in public life, is this year sustainable cities, sustainability in the city. So in other words, it's about ecology, it's about uh, business models, and it's about the way we live in cities with a view to making the world a slightly better place for the environment and perhaps for the people who live in that environment. So I have uh, three guests today. I mean, usually in Hillansweiden we do three in a very simple way. We're just two people, talking heads, speaking across a table. And today we're four people talking. Uh, so we have uh, Martin de Montfelixen, who's a postdoc at the Department of Social Anthropology and one of the main organizers of why the world needs anthropologists. We have Tim Wendelbo, who's a rather famous barista. Um, so he's famous for uh, making some of the best coffee we around. And we have Magnus Humle from a company which in Norwegian is called Gro Grunt, which in English I think would be something like Grow Green. So in other words, green profile. So uh, maybe I could start by asking you, Tim, um, what's, what's green, what's sustainable about your business? <laughs> well, I think our main focus is actually uh, not to be... Well, we want to be sustainable here in Oslo as well, but uh, our main focus is actually in the producing countries. So we try to uh, work closely with the coffee producers in order to make their production more sustainable, uh, in order to make the coffee quality better, mm -hmm. and uh, paying them a fair price so that they can actually invest in their farm and also live a good life where they can send their kids to university and so on. So it's kind of a holistic approach to... Uh, to increasing quality of uh, coffee, quality of life, mm -hmm. uh, and quality of the environment at the uh, farm level where we buy our coffee from. Because our business, we only sell coffee. And without uh, good quality green coffee uh, that we roast, um, it's impossible to serve good coffee. Mm -hmm. And if we don't f treat our suppliers fairly, which in the coffee world is not uh, the normal standard, uh, then they will stop producing coffee at a point where other alternatives will be more lucrative. Such as cocaine in Colombia. Cocaine or uh, even marijuana or avocados or, mm -hmm. you know, uh, I fear that marijuana will be the next big thing uh, in producing countries. So, um, yes. it's, it's for me, it's not really about uh, anthropology at all. It's about respecting my suppliers and working together with them as a team 
Mm -hmm. uh, just like with my employees, I would pay them a fair wage so that they don't leave because of a low wage. Uh, I have to think that uh, the same way with the coffee producers that I work for. Mm. And then also I have uh, uh, invested in my own land in Colombia where I am trying to become a coffee farmer. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I started that project, I started reading about soil biology, mm -hmm. which uh, has really changed my mindset and how I think about what I eat and also how we work with the producers. And I've discovered that working with the soil and uh, regenerating the soil to become more healthy will uh, have uh, huge uh, benefits when it comes to the environment and also uh, profitability when it comes to producing coffee. Right. Well, that's, uh, that's amazing because, uh, I mean, one of the big problems, I guess, in the consumer society is the fact that we, we know very little about where the stuff we use comes from and where it's going afterwards. Yeah. I mean, it's produced in some abstract place and you buy it in the supermarket or wherever without giving it much thought. Yeah. So what you're talking about is really making us a bit more conscious about what kind of circuits, what kind of ecological contexts that, uh, that our consumption enters into. So, I mean, one of the big news items this autumn has been uh, the, the forest fires in the Amazon. Uh, and it takes a little while to explain to people that one reason why there are forest fires is that people in Norway and elsewhere are so fond of eating beef yeah. you know, because they, you know, they use them for the, 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 the burnt spaces are used for pastures for cattle or to, to grow so soybeans to yeah. feed the cattle in cold countries or to feed our salmon Farming. Exactly, yeah, exactly, which is also, uh, that's another issue which, which needs to be addressed. But tell me, Tim, uh, are the farms that you work with, are they mainly small scale? Because there are some really huge coffee farms. Yeah, so to give you some context, first of all, uh, when we talk about price, the market price for coffee today is about $1 per pound of coffee, which is about half a kilo of green coffee. That's for commodity coffee, but this is below production costs. Mm -hmm. And it's been, the price has been the same more or less since the 70s, with small fluctuations. But of course, uh, in relative to other things, it's now much, much cheaper than it used to be. Yeah. So um, that means a lot of the farmers are struggling to get the ends to meet. So when you deal with quality coffee, a, a problem in our world is that even though uh, we look at the sea price and we say we pay more for coffee, it might not be enough. So that's uh, one kind of thing. So for quality coffee, maybe the price would be $3 and above. Yeah. Uh, so there is a difference. Um, but there's also a higher cost involved. Um, uh, yeah, but, you know, food shouldn't be cheap. No, exactly. And, and good food should be expensive. I mean, uh, you should have to go a bit out of your way to get it. Yeah. yeah. But I went to a farm in Brazil in May, uh, and they had 6,000 hectares of land. And we actually flew a private plane over it to be able to see the whole farm. Mm. Uh, everything is harvested mechanically, uh, and it's it's owned by rich people. Uh, nothing wrong with that, and they actually do a lot of great work uh, mm -hmm. in their community. But uh, they are, of course, able to produce coffee for less than one dollar per pound with a profit. Yes. Uh, whereas the farms that I work with are normally small farms. So in Africa, typically a smallholder farm that is part of a cooperative would have half a hectare of land. Mm -hmm. And they would have a small house there, a cow, some corn, grow some coffee trees that they kind of harvest the fruit and just sell the fruit. Yeah. In Colombia, a farm typically is two hectares, but we work with a 50-hectare farm. Mm -hmm. And also in Central America, we have you know 16-hectare farm, 150-hectare farm that we yeah. work with. So it's, it yeah. depends really on the area. But they, they rely 
on people like you to a great extent otherwise they would be out of business very soon yeah. if they had to just compete on, on as it were on, on pr producing stuff at a low price yeah. and we see this happen in lots of parts of the world these days owing to contemporary globalization because transportation costs have become so low that no matter where you produce things if you can only do it in big quantities you'll be able to to squeeze out of, uh, small producers out of the market yeah. we are the project I had a student who was working with banana growers in Dominica in the Caribbean and uh, and she showed that you know for for many years they they were doing perfectly fine they could sell their bananas to the European Union and the UK they had quotas and so on so that they were guaranteed the minimum price and then after the deregulation of the world market they had to compete on the same level, on a par with everybody else, yeah. which meant that those enormous banana plantations in Costa Rica and Panama, I mean, they, they, there was just no chance that these small-scale people could compete. But what some of them have done resembles what your coffee farmers are doing, I think, that they target certain buyers yeah. who are interested in organic, in fair trade, you know, in, in various sort of criteria that they're able to fulfill. But it's hard work, because yeah. they, because and, they, and it also shows some of the limitations of the so-called free market. And also there, there is, uh, at least with fair trade, there is more production than demand. So yeah. it's not a guarantee that mm -hmm. you actually get to sell the coffee as fair trade. Yeah. So the farmers that I work with are, like when they kind of started focusing on quality, they had two options, either to stop growing coffee and find something else, mm -hmm. which is hard in uh, rural areas. There's not many work... Uh, or jobs around, uh, or they could uh, try to focus on quality and, and hope that a buyer comes along that wants to yeah. buy it. And for to grow quality, you're not mm -hmm. it's not something that you only can decide. You also have to have a farm with good climate conditions, that are good varieties, yeah. and so on. And just to change a variety of coffee tree can take 10 years to yeah. get a good production. So uh, it's not an easy thing that you can just decide to do. It's also some things you can't control. Yeah, oh, it's fascinating. I'm looking forward to sort of following your adventure <laughs> in Colombia in the next, in the next, well, ten years maybe. Yeah. Um, okay. So, uh, and uh, among us, uh, Grow Grant, Grow Green. Can you just tell us a little bit about this business? Uh, yes. Um, well, the company is uh, starting to get, I think, three years since the, the beginning now. Mm -hmm. uh, so we started off uh, uh, wanting to uh, produce uh, edible greens uh, closer to people mm -hmm. and have uh, really fresh produce available all year round. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, we, we started talking with the Oslo Commune mm -hmm. about finding a, a concrete uh, area, like really unusable land area where we can put our uh, a container which uh, we started off producing uh, greens inside of mm -hmm. uh, so we had uh, we, we did some rounds about finding the, the proper place and we, we found that a cheap place where we can mm -hmm. produce our, our uh, greens mm -hmm. uh, and uh, this is a 40 foot container uh, and um, uh, it was placed at the place called uh, Akebrygge, mm -hmm. and uh, it was kind of like in the midst of a traffic uh, trafficated area. Mm -hmm. So uh, to try to get people interested in what we were doing, we had to lure people in, and mm -hmm. so they were able to see what we're doing. Mm -hmm. So in the in the end of the container, we mounted a big glass frame, so we mm -hmm. could open the doors 
uh, of the container so people could, could look inside and see the whole production ways from uh, from sprout to to the big plants wow so uh, and and that is kind of like our our split model uh, yeah. education and also producing uh, good quality greens yeah we have to get some, a little bit more detail here because uh, from what I hear it's more ecologically sustainable to get your tomatoes flown in from Kenya uh, than to get them from a greenhouse in the Netherlands mm. because of the energy needed to, um, to, keep, to keep the plants growing in the cold and dark months so how do you solve that problem? Uh, well, we, we don't produce uh, tomatoes now. No, but we produce <laughs> greens. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, it, and it does get cold around yeah. here. Yeah, 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 it does. So, so this, uh, this, uh, uh, the, the farms that we, we have are indoor farms mm -hmm. with, um, with a controlled uh, climate environment. Mm -hmm. So it's completely locked. Uh, we don't use sunlight. Mm -hmm. We don't use uh, soil. We use... Um, uh, the roots are hanging in the mid-air into uh, a water-based solution with uh, nutrients. Mm. So everything is, uh, is traceable and replicable for, for each cycle of, of the plant. Mm -hmm. So we, we know exactly the, 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 the amount that we put in, what will come out the next month. Yeah. So we, we, um, yeah, we focus on, on finding the right type of nutrients, mm -hmm. the right uh, type of lights for, for having the best produce. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. And the heating? Well, I mean, in Norway, we're lucky enough to have hydroelectricity, so uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. that leaves us... Yeah, th that's, that's the biggest expense that we have, is, mm -hmm. uh, is on, um, on uh, well, power for, for heating and controlling the, the, um, the temperature inside of the farms. Mm -hmm. So, um, but um, yeah. Right. And who do you typically sell your produce to? Well, we, we started off selling directly to uh, to restaurants and and um, yeah, uh, more of, of the um, yeah, restaurants uh, in, in inside of Oslo. Um, that was a bit of a stretch because we had to. We had no uh, cars, so we had to take the subway, for example, mm -hmm. with uh, packs of greens uh, in containers packed. And uh, yeah, I was that uh, guy that everyone said, hold the doors, this guy is coming through. So mm -hmm. I had like stacks of greens. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, and that was <coughs> not a valid model or a sustainable model in the mm -hmm. far, far end. So um, we started uh, getting in contact with um, Meni as a mm -hmm. supermarket, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. and they uh, they uh, wanted to to try our products. Uh, so we uh, and for that to happen, we we uh, we wanted to be closer to the actual supermarkets. Mm -hmm. So we we uh, took the whole uh, container farm that we had and we moved it uh, right outside of the door of one of the. Uh, many stores. Wow. It's it's uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we can just like stroll out and right into the store, uh, picked 20 minutes, and you you get the fresh. Yeah, you talked about yeah, it, it's fresh and it hasn't been flown across the planet. Yeah. But do you think that you know urban agriculture is a term which is going around a bit, and it turns out that in most cities, certainly in the global south, a lot of food is being produced in the city itself. Do you think that will be an option for a place like Oslo, where things are more regulated, where the climate is colder, and so on? 
Yeah, I, I think it's a, I think it is an addition to our uh, current uh, way of producing food. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think it will take over in any ways, but I think mm-hmm. it's a good addition. So, and and back to quality. Yeah. I think uh, people are more aware now of what is a good quality product. So um, uh, you see now more more um, mm-hmm. more uh, industrial buildings will uh, will produce their food on on, on top of their yeah. uh, seal, uh, on the roofs. Yes, exactly. Um, but you also have like all abandoned buildings around all over uh, that you can easily turn into producible areas like yeah. basements and yeah. yeah yeah yes i have a, i have a dream i mean it will probably never be fulfilled but to to set up a mushroom farm you know in some yeah. some abandoned underground uh, cellar somewhere because mushrooms like it's sort of cold and humid and dark mm. that's already happening actually there's a lady who collects the coffee grounds from my shop and other coffee shops, mm-hmm. and she grows oyster mushrooms wow. inside an old uh, industrial building and yes. sells it to restaurants and stuff. Yes. So yes, I mean the, these are these are very interesting ideas. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, it's quite clear that there has been a shift in the way we think about the city and life itself. I mean, that this kind of thing is now coming into focus, which it didn't, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Yeah, I mean, people wanted to get the cars out of the city centre, but that was because it was unpleasant, it was noisy and smelly, and now we think much more ecologically about life in the city. But what do you think, Martin? can you tell us a bit about the conference? I mean, now we know a bit about Tim and Magnus and what they do mm. uh, in, in, in their businesses, which are quite different, but which somehow are based on many of the same principles and values regarding mm. uh, production, consumption, life in the city, uh, and also the way in which the way we live is being is clearly it's connected to places elsewhere in the world. It's not enough, you know, to be sustainable here if the people who produce your coffee beans mm. don't do it in a sustainable way. Mm. So can you just tell us a bit about the conference and how anthropology comes into this? Well, the, the conference overall is um, usually premised on a theme, which is sustaining the city this year, and most often with anthropology in relation to another discipline or a few other disciplines. Mm-hmm which on, um, you can say, on a broader level this year is mainly architecture or urban planning because the, these are kind of the, the big players when it comes to, uh, to questions of, of sustainability. Um, but one of the things we're interested in is also to see what kind of goes on, I mean, on the ground or on, on different levels in terms mm-hmm. of, uh, of sustainability or the fabric of the city uh, mm-hmm. in, in these terms, uh, which is why we've been reaching out to, uh, uh, to uh, companies uh, such as Tim and Magnus's, who are really part of the somewhat grassroots movements that have, uh, that have put sustainability on the agenda. Mm-hmm. Um, because, as you also said, I mean, it, it's a theme that's really been booming over the last years, um, uh, in the sense that, I mean, governments are starting to pay attention to it, city planners are starting to pay attention to it, but there are people who have actually been paying attention to it for quite a while on a grassroots level, which yes. is, I mean, producers and smaller companies yeah. who have tried to get uh, what you would call a green profile. Um, and one of the things we're interested in is, is seeing how these green profiles are kind of taken up and how they can be... Yeah examined by anthropology, but also used on a broader level by, uh, mm-hmm. by city planners, for instance. Yeah. I think one, one interesting thing is that uh, 
the interest in sustainability and ecology and global responsibility, it's, it's sort of shifted. I mean, it's becoming more mainstream. I mean, when I was a teenager and I started to get involved with environmental questions, I mean, the people who were involved with ecology and the environment <laughs> and that sort of thing, they were, you know, long-haired hippie types. Yeah. I mean, uh, mm. far away from the establishment. And also people later on who have produced food and clothes and so on in alternative ways. It's been fairly, fairly sort of closed communities, subcultural communities. But both of you relate, I mean, to mainstream society. I mean, you want ordinary people to come into your, to your coffee bar, yeah. and uh, anybody should, uh, should buy that coffee because it's good, but perhaps also a little bit because it's responsible and it's ethical. Yeah, but I, I, I think, you know, one of the keys for us is that we don't really push that in when you come to our store. It's not the first thing we talk about. Mm -hmm. uh, we use uh, social media a lot and uh, our website, and I make videos that are published on YouTube as well, mm -hmm. where I talk about these things, and I'm also going to start a podcast mm -hmm. where uh, I feel that I can uh, have longer time to explain uh, which you can't really in a store when the, when a customer comes in and asks about why don't we have organic coffee for instance mm -hmm. you know that answer is so complex and I don't want to spend 30 minutes explaining mm -hmm. so you have to kind of do it very quickly yeah. but uh, I think uh, because we have been communicating what we do for so many years now uh, a lot of our kind of fans and followers although they might not know the details they kind of know that yeah the, it's quality coffee but it has something more Mm -hmm. But they might not know all the details what we're doing at Origin, for instance. No, right, yeah. And uh, and what about you, Magnus? I mean, uh, when you when you sell your greens to menu, for example, are they are they marked? I mean, is it possible for me as a customer? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, there's the traceability there, mm -hmm. so you can see where where they come from, mm -hmm. uh, and we uh, we also have. Um, uh, open days for for the nearby community to come and visit and see the whole production as well and uh, as a part of the agreement with the, uh, the one of the many uh, stores that we were at mm -hmm. um, we uh, we want to kind of close the loop on on the excess uh, mm -hmm. waste mm -hmm. that comes from uh, salad bars for example mm -hmm. so right next to our farm we have an outdoor farm mm -hmm where we uh, use a method called no-till, where we don't dig into the soil, but we just compact it with, with more and more manure and, mm -hmm. and, and waste. Uh, so we take the waste from, uh, from uh, the salad bar, from the knee, for example, mm -hmm. and also from our uh, growing plugs that uh, holds uh, our salad, mm -hmm. and we shift it back to the, to the soil. Yeah. So we can grow food there as well. So we, we're trying to get it like a closed loop on on the whole production. Yeah, very interesting. interesting. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so, so we want to, to explain that to the customers as well. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, this is something that I personally really uh, fires up about. I, I think it's really, it's a fun way to, to, to um, yeah, to, to share knowledge where, where things come from. Uh, because we, we have some um, groups of kids coming from schools and, and kindergartens mm -hmm. who don't know where their produce comes from. They don't know. They, they see just a perfectly packaged bag of greens. They don't know the origin from it. So mm -hmm. this is an easy, simple way to get them involved and, and curious about Norwegian food production as well, mm -hmm. not only shipped from Spain or 
Portugal or wherever they, they come from. Okay. Yes. Uh, but, uh, I think it's uh, worthless to talk about sustainability if we don't talk about soil, uh, because uh, our agricultural system today is depleting our soils very, very quickly. And mm. a lot of the carbon that is stored in the soil is evaporated into the atmosphere. If we were more focused on regenerating the soil like you were doing with no-till, uh, actually growing mushrooms in mm -hmm. the soil or fungus, mm -hmm. which uh, uh, soil should be full of, mm -hmm. uh, we could store a lot of carbon in the soil without you know, doing a lot of work. And you create better food with more organisms on that is mm -hmm. healthy for us. Uh, you can store a lot of carbon. There's less input cost for the farmers. So, and the yields have proven to be, when they do no-till farming, to be higher, mm -hmm. more resilient towards the drought, and so on. So uh, there is a movement uh, in the U.S., but also starting all over the world. And I've seen uh, there's a state in India that was actually, mm -hmm. uh, by law, uh, forced the farmers to do regenerative farming, really? which yeah. uh, I think will be the future for agriculture and for the world because if we don't, you know, uh, we're not going to feed ourselves. And no. I mean, the world will, will survive, but the humanity might not. Yeah, 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 <laughs> we'll, we'll get in, into trouble. <laughs> That's right. But I mean, what you're talking about, Magnus, I mean, with those sort of roots sort of dangling freely with no soil into a sort of a solution which contains nutrients, uh, it almost sounds, sounds more like a laboratory than like a farm. Yeah, uh, well, uh, some parts of the system we're using was uh, was uh, kind of put into life from NASA, mm -hmm. trying to find ways of uh, producing food on really unhospitable environments. Yeah, also, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was the kind of like the... So, so people tried that in the late 70s, early 80s, but kind of dropped it because the cost of lights and... and and, and uh, power was too too high. Uh, now we're seeing uh, there's a lot of competition between light factories producing super good uh, LED lights, mm -hmm. for example, where um, where people can buy this and and produce food at home. Yeah. So it's getting this uh, this cheap. Um, so uh, yeah. Right. yeah. So, uh, yes, so, so I mean, but both of your businesses, I, what I would think of, you know, as a social scientist, are sort of bottom-up ways of changing the world. But then you have, you know, the top-down model, where you have a government or you have people in power who put into place, you know, regulations, laws, they change the infrastructure of the city, that sort of thing. And in Oslo, we've, I mean, we've had the city government now for more than four years, where the Green Party has played a fairly visible role. So we have more bicycle lanes. It's become very hard, you know, to drive your car in the city centre, yes. uh, and, and and so on. I mean, if you finally manage to get in, you, you're not able to find your way out because there's only one exit, <laughs> 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 which is hidden. Uh, and uh, and they've also taken some other initiatives. What do you think, Martin? Should, should we? How should we think about the sustainable city? Uh, is it mainly based on grassroots initiatives from below? as these two gentlemen represent, or, uh, or should we rely more on, uh, on political authorities? Well, it, in a sense, you have to rely on both. I mean, because there is a clear necessity that there is grassroots because they in themselves are more sustainable than a government. I mean, mm -hmm. governments are not sustainable. They will, they will change or fall. Or, or, yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. um, so it's difficult to rely completely on these, I mean, this top-down level because mm -hmm. it's malleable to to changes taking place. Mm -hmm. I mean, that said, on the long term, I mean, regulations uh, uh, are necessary to keep some kind of level or to, uh, 
to generate different kinds of change. Yeah. Uh, do we have any good experiences from other cities that we could compare ourselves with, since we are in Oslo, and Oslo has great ambitions you know, to be uh, an environmental beacon for the world, that sort of thing. Um, do we have any sort of yeah, good sort of best practice examples from other parts of the world that you know about? Well, I think it's difficult to pinpoint like one city where mm-hmm. I mean, a, a, a city that is sustainable. I mean, I know there was a summit in Copenhagen a few days mm-hmm. ago um, where I mean, 40 major cities or mayors of 40 cities meet basically to discuss uh, different kinds of best practice. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but you can say one of the things that becomes very evident when you look at those kinds of, uh, of events is that there isn't really an overall plan. I mean, the overall mm-hmm. plan of how to actually make a sustainable city. Mm. No one really has that. I mean, but yeah. you can look at these kind of best practices, which can be anything yeah. from, I mean, when you design entirely new neighborhoods, which is, I mean, something Oslo is, yeah. <laughs> is definitely doing, that when you begin that process, I mean, what mm-hmm. do you need to take into account yeah. to make it at least partially sustainable? Yes. Because, I mean, sustainability on that level is... There is a degree of utopia in it. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's an ideal that governments or city planners can strive towards yeah. because there isn't really any fixed plan of how you end up with the perfect sustainable city yet. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, uh, there's this city in Abu Dhabi called Mustar City, which has been created quite recently with the aim of being 100% sustainable. So there's no air conditioning, for example. I mean, there's a lot of shade, and they have these sort of wind tunnels where there's always a breeze blowing and that kind of thing. The only problem with Mustar City is that uh, it's just next to the airport, and it's very convenient because everybody who goes there, they fly. And people who live there, they fly a lot in and out because you can't stay in Abu Dhabi all your life. Mm. So there are limits, you know, and it's difficult to uh, to, to be 100% sustainable, mm. but it's... Uh, Yes, I mean, it's, I, it, of course, it's worth an effort. And perhaps one of the things that anthropology can contribute is uh, that we can stimulate the imagination because we know that things could be different. Things could be organized in a different way. Mm-hmm. And that's also one reason I mentioned the urban agriculture. You know, you go into a, what in anthropology we call an informal settlement, but what everybody else calls a slum, okay, in, in, in say, a city in Africa. And you notice that, yeah, I mean, people get by in one way or another. And many have a pig, for example, I mean, in Nairobi, or they grow a bit of, well, marijuana, unfortunately, but they also grow food. Mm. Um, just outside the shack, um, where they live temporarily, because they can be evicted by the authorities at any time. So they get by in an improvisational way, and if you fly over one of those informal settlements, it's, it's, it's very green. You see glimpses of houses and shacks here and there. And, but also palm trees and, and small plantations where they, where they grow stuff. So, the, so this uh, could be, you know, uh, and so what you're doing, Magnus, I mean, with this sort of uh, fairly avant-garde, as I said, almost science fiction-like way of producing food, could be, could be part of the solution. Mm. Ur- urban beekeeping is also coming into, yeah, into the world now because of the realization that the bee population of the world is, is dwindling and is, will create problems, not just for the bees, but also for us. Mm. And not just because we like honey, but because we eat other stuff as well, like oranges. Mm. Coffee is self-pollinating, so we're... we're <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good for you. No, but I, I, I recently read uh, a, a book about soil, actually, a Norwegian author, and, uh, and he, in that book it was described that during the war a lot of the you know, urban cities, everyone who had a garden was encouraged to grow their own vegetables 
like kohlrabi yeah. and like high nutrient vegetables. So, yeah. and uh, th- there's nothing really stopping us from doing that now. We just mm-hmm. want a lawn, which is you know kind of pointless. You, you don't use it for anything. The only thing you do is to cut it every now and then, and nobody wants to mm-hmm. cut their own lawn. So uh, you might as well just grow a little bit of your own food, and I think that could be part of a more sustainable city, but then we can't put concrete everywhere. You know? no. Mm. no, I was thinking about that there's just this year, which also says something about the way our mentality is changing, the way we think. I was, uh, I was mowing my lawn at home, and started to think you know, how absurd it is to have a lawn. Nobody mm. uses this anymore, yeah. because my kids are grown. When they were young, we played football, and we fooled around a bit on, on the lawn. But we know, don't, don't really need it. So I could use it to grow all kinds of stuff. Yeah, and there, there's an urban farm in uh, in Björvika, which is like a development area now. And uh, that they started off on you know concrete and uh, asphalt, and now they're producing a lot of greens. And it's kind of volunteer based, but it's uh, run by a, a city farmer mm-hmm. who's hired by the the municipality of Oslo. So uh, it is possible to do even on, on kind of depleted land hmm. to just bring in some dirt and then yeah. make it become soil again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You see, to some extent, you see this in Japan, uh, where there is a scarcity of, of arable land. I mean, uh, Japan is densely populated, but only one part of Japan is densely populated because most of it is mountain and forest, which can't really be just like Norway. So most people live on this, on this sort of strip on on Honshu, the largest island. And when you, and when you go through this area by, by train, as I did a couple of years ago, you notice that in these villages, in the little towns, there are little rice paddies, little fields. Uh, there are, you know, there's a few, maybe a few cattle uh, in between the houses in, the, in what is essentially an urban area. So, uh, so this this is an interesting, uh, and it will probably increase the quality of life as well. Yeah. It's nice to have some plants and animals nearby, isn't it? Definitely, yeah. I, I think um, some of the ways we can produce food in in uh, in the cities is, um, as you said, with with lawns. Mm. That's actually the way I started uh, when I was studying in in Stockholm. Uh, I um, I lived at a place called Hulstul. Mm-hmm. Uh, where they have a lot of uh, small cottages for for um, yeah for people over sixty who, mm-hmm. who come there like every once in a while and and mm-hmm. tend their garden yeah and drink the coffee and drink the coffee yeah mm-hmm. so uh, I started off uh, kind of like um, uh, growing my food in the in the edge of their uh, of their uh, grass lawns. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, they weren't really happy about it in, in the beginning, but uh, after a while I, I, I was able to, to to share some of the excess uh, produce with them. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I got some friends with me and we, we started to, to grow more food. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think um, usually when you when you buy food, it's from bigger corporations who are, are really protective of their ways of growing. Uh, but now you see... Uh, it's a more of an open source way of doing things. Mm-hmm. People uh, post things on on YouTube where you can basically grow your own market garden in mm-hmm. like 100 square meters or less, like really profitable uh, places. Mm. Uh, so uh, there's a lot of incentive for sharing information now, I think, than just five to ten years ago, mm-hmm. especially on, on yeah, growing. And part of the challenge is, of course, distribution, but uh, we also see now Rico Rings, where farmers were actually, they create like Facebook groups where they uh, they kind of take orders from people who are members of the group, and then they show up on a parking lot or something and kind of sell their produce that's mm-hmm. already pre-ordered by the members. Yeah. Uh, so you're kind of skipping 
the supermarkets and all this kind of middlemen. So you do get higher quality, fresher products for um, very competitive price, and you know where it's from and how it's grown and so on. Mm, and, yeah. and people will give you instant feedback as well yeah. of the produce, so you can change. And you have to stay on top of, the, of your game mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, but all of that, I mean, when you think about Oslo in a, in a, in a broader, wider sense, is there anything that any recommendation that you two guys would make to the city government now? How can we make the city greener than it is? How can we sort of fulfil the promise of being an environmental capital? Yeah, I, I think um, uh, there's a lot of concrete areas, as Tim said, uh, and and they are. And they are just being walked on. There, mm-hmm. There's no, there's a lot of place there where you can actually grow food or, or have some sort of activity. It doesn't have no. to be food either. No. It, it can be like yeah, as, as a grassroots movement. You can have information. Uh, I, I think it's, it's all about if you if you want to have sustainability in, in growing food or or, or changing uh, the city, you have to inform people and people need instant uh, access to, to information. So if you have that visible inside of the city, people will tend to expand their horizon and maybe mm-hmm. see, uh, see it in the broader sense as well. Yeah. yeah. Do you have any suggestions, Tim? I know it's a, bi- it's a big question. Yeah, I, have, big I question. have one idea myself, but it's not yeah. a very original one. Well, uh, as much as I love uh, uh, that there's more bicycles in the city. I think uh, we have a huge problem with the regulation of it. So people just cycle everywhere. And mm-hmm. uh, like in Copenhagen, it's actually a system that works. Yep. So systemizing our bicycling uh, people <laughs> are, uh, will be a huge help, I think. And I, as a small business owner in, in the city center, I do see less and less small businesses in the city center. And it's becoming increasingly hard to deliver coffee, for instance, yeah. uh, because I have to take uh, you know huge uh, routes because of uh, closed streets and you know. Yeah. So um, figuring out a better way to actually get deliveries into the city because yeah. we want a lot of people to live in the city, but we don't want any businesses there. So what end we end up is with these uh, restaurants and cafes, but they still need deliveries. So figuring out how to do that without having to have big trucks and, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a kind of electric bicycles and electric, uh, small electric cars that can deliver and so on, but mm-hmm. figuring out a way to kind of encourage that would yes. be nice, I think. Yes, that sounds like a, like a good challenge. And if I were to suggest one thing, I would, you know, improve the, the tram and metro network. I mean, the ideal city, you know, if you think in terms of sustainability, is a place where people live in really high-rise buildings, and they have a metro station in the basement, mm-hmm. and then they have shops on the, on the ground floor and on the, on the first floor. Um, that's the most sustainable model. In Norway, it doesn't really sort of work mentally for us, because culturally we're conditioned to think that the, the sustainable life is in the countryside. But, uh, yeah... So, Martin, um, can you tell us, well, I'm not going to ask you about Oslo, since you're a foreigner, <laughs> probably you know that foreign, but you're from Denmark, which is, has different challenges from Norway, okay, because we're about as many as you, and we have a huge country with lots of mountains, mm. and you have a fairly small country, which is much easier to manage in some ways. But uh, the conference, um, why the world needs anthropologists, which is the reason why we're here, um, what do you hope will come out of it? Well, what we're mainly hoping for, of course, <coughs> is that we can, in a sense, have discussions like the one we are, we are having here 
um, not just with anthropologists kind of patting each other on the back and telling us mm-hmm. ourselves that we <laughs> that we need us and that, mm-hmm. that we're doing something, but there is that there will actually be an engagement where I mean where anthropology can be discussed in relation to uh, to the challenges and, mm-hmm. um, and and problematics that erupt when you discuss questions like uh, yeah. like sustainability. Yeah, and it's quite interesting to see. I mean, from the perspective of anthropology, that anthropologists are still associated with the study of faraway places or with quaint little practices that we do here or with immigrants or with indigenous peoples but one of the big growth areas for anthropology in the last few years has been what is called design anthropology where anthropologists are involved in software design you know because they can tell a bit about you know what the users need how people actually use computers because we get really up close and personal with the people we work with we don't just ask them questions we spend a lot of time with them so we know quite a bit about social relations so you have that in software design but also in urban planning anthropologists are getting involved even in product design you know, industrial design mm. they say that no, this this teapot is not going to work because people you know people don't live in this way in the kitchen uh, and, and that sort of you know they, they, they use the kitchen in a different way and we've, and we've seen that uh, or in urban design I mean this is not going to work because people are never going to sit on that bench because it's in the shade and people want to sit in the sun I mean simple things mm-hmm. or, or you want I mean if you want uh, if you want those new suburbs in those new parts of Oslo near the central station which are very flash and very uh, uh, look very modern you almost feel like you're abroad you know when you walk there and I need Google Maps to navigate yeah. you know those <laughs> new streets you, you keep thinking that, well, I mean, what are, where are the nice little corners where you can sit down? I mean, there's sort of uh, messy places where there are bees and insects and where there's a bit of, you know, weeds growing and so on. Mm. So anthropologists can, you know, give that sort of, that sort of advice. So but also um, give, I mean, very concrete examples that, that may not have, I mean, have erupted in mm-hmm. the discussions that go on within a company or within the municipality. Uh, yeah. With, as you say, kind of best practices, or kind mm-hmm. of, uh, but also grassroots practices yeah. uh, on different level, which can be anything from something like waste management, uh, yeah. or the question of how you you uh, abstain from building something new, but actually work with maintenance instead of uh, mm-hmm. instead of construction. Yeah, and we also instinctively just to plug a bit of. Uh, ad- ad- advertising for the policy at the end here. We also <laughs> instinctively we think, you know, comparatively in the sense that uh, when you see something, you think, okay, what does this resemble somewhere else? So, for example, when people in Oslo uh, said that, no, I mean, uh, getting the cars out of the city centre will be impossible, and, and you also pointed out to him that you know deliveries are difficult. Mm. Well, in German cities they managed, they found ways yeah. of combining. Uh, the populations want to need to walk in the city without too many cars, and the businesses need to get uh, get their deliveries. Mm. So, uh, and when it comes to public transport, yeah, I mean, there are cities which manage better than, better than us. Mm. So, um, yeah, anyway, um, I think I think we're uh, we, we've gone through a, we've covered a bit of ground. What do you say, Martin? I think so, um, and I think um, I mean just to to add on to some of it. I mean, or, or to where we started. I think one of the central things that we also hope, I mean, to discuss at least at, th- at the conference is the way in which the sustainable or the green has kind of become a brand um, that is really taken up by a lot of uh, kind of larger companies than the ones who actually develop them, uh, like like your companies. Yes. And the challenges faced both for, I mean, for consumers and for for smaller companies, 
uh, when when green kind of becomes a, a CSR management tool, yeah. um, because green is profit now, or it's yeah. seen as profit. So um, we have to look critically at it. I mm. mean, you have those companies which are just uh, greenwashing, as we call it. You'd pretend to be green, and then you have the the, the real stuff. Mm. And we're lucky enough uh, in the Highlands world, in Island, to have two representatives, so people who represent the real stuff here. Mm. <laughs> we do small-scale businesses in a sustainable way, but very differently, because you have one, I mean, Magnus, locally, locally sourced food, and Tim, who thinks about the the entire value chain of coffee, and where where the coffee is coming from, and how it's being produced, and uh, and so on. So thanks both, um, Magnus Sundra, uh, Tim Vendebo, and uh, Martin Devant Fredriksen from the Department of Anthropology. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you.